0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Portland, Oregon, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling, with numbers specific to Portland. Plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Portland. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome everyone. This is your host, James Orr, and this is a very special class. It is the class on conventional financing. And it is intended to be like a good overview class of the conventional financing options for real estate investors. And honestly, we've covered a lot of this content elsewhere because some of the times when we talk about... Low down payment options. We talked about conventional financing as an option there as well, because you can put 3% down uh, for the whatever it is, home possible or home ready loan. I forget what the name of it is. uh, Or doing a 5% down, kind of like normal owner occupant down payment. When we talk about the strategy that house hackers or nomads could use as real estate investors in order to do financing. But today we're going to primarily focus on going over conventional financing in the context of putting 15% 15% down on the low end. And in most cases, probably putting 20 or 25% down by choice. You can do conventional financing with as little as 15% down. However, I think a lot of investors are going to choose to bump up to at least 20%. And I think in a lot of cases, which we'll cover in a separate class, you will opt to go from 20% to 25% because the interest rates can improve quite a bit and you're also going to get, you're going to be borrowing less money, so the cash flow will improve. So one of the kind of strategies for improving cash flow, we're kind of in this market where uh, prices have gone up very rapidly over the last few years, interest rates are up quite a bit, and rents are sort of lagging behind. So cash flow, even though cash flow is probably more important than ever, cash flow is harder to come by. And so a lot of you folks are going to decide that it may be better for me to save up, to 25% instead of just saving up to 20% so that I can borrow less, less of an impact from those higher interest rates. And the interest rate does improve when you go from that 20% to that 25%. And it's pretty significant, which will really help improve cash flow on these properties. Um, And some of you may actually choose to forego financing altogether and buy properties free and clear, which we'll cover in future classes as well. Okay. So let's talk about uh, uh, conventional financing. So why conventional financing? You know, some investors will be obsessed with Nothing down options like the USDA or the VA or you know, doing some type of like really ideal- idealistic burst strategy where you can go buy properties at such a deep discount that you can do the work and pull all of your money back out after you have time to refinance it 12 months down the line. Or they'll be obsessed with low down payment options like doing house hacking or the nomad strategy where you're putting you know, 3% down for conventional financing or 3.5% down for FHA. Maybe you're buying a single family home with FHA or duplex or triplex or fourplex, or maybe you're going to go buy a single family home with 5% down conventional financing, um, you know, all of those kind of like low down financing options. Um, so there'll be some people that are obsessed with that. And some of you guys will be doing that out of necessity, you know, that you don't have down payments. And I I totally understand that. If you're just getting started, you know, and you're you're trying to uh, kind of amass, if you're familiar with my concept of that first 100K, sometimes you really need to get started and you're willing to take on additional risk by doing some investing with nothing down or low down in order to get into that first property. However, about one third of all real estate transactions are purchased for cash. And here is the latest Redfin data going through, uh, I think pretty much March, if I'm not mistaken, that definitely shows January of 2023 on here. But I believe it's actually just not showing um, enough granularity for you to see that it's going through to March, Uh, but it shows you what percentage and so you could see going all the way back to 2011 which at this point is 12 years ago, you can see that it kind of fluctuates uh, the share of U.S. homes purchased with cash. And so you can see that, you know, it's just over 30% there. We kind of peaked out at whatever this is, 37% or so in the 2013 sort of era. And you can see that there's, you know, a little bit of movement here, but the low was about 20% of properties being purchased with cash. And that was in April of 2020, which when interest rates were really, really, really low, right after COVID, it doesn't surprise me that a lot of people decided to finance properties then. You know, when you can get a 3% interest rate on buying an investment property or 3% interest rate buying an owner-occupant or lower than that if you're buying an owner-occupant. I think we were seeing really, really low around that time. Um, it wouldn't surprise me that cash purchases were at all-time low. But now we've kind of had interest rates kind of creeping up and uh, the number of properties or percentage of properties that are purchased all cash is pushing you know whatever this is, thirty two percent or so, and that is a a local high. Um, you know we're 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 basically uh, for the last nine years that is the highest we've seen all cash purchases. Which, if you ever see me do my presentation on. You know, how much longer it takes to achieve financial independence if you wait that really, really, really long time to save up enough money to buy a property all cash, then you buy that property all cash and you save up to buy the next one all cash. And you kind of do that as your strategy to acquire rental properties as quickly as you can, even though it seems like it's really, really long. It's not that much longer than if you save up and put, you know, 5% down or 20% down or 25% down in order to buy rental properties because the cash flow on an all cash purchase is significantly better than the cash flow you're seeing on a 5% down or 20% down or 25% down sort of purchase. And so you get to financial independence not that much slower, in some cases, maybe even faster. So I'll do another class on that coming up here, but realize that it's not as bad as you might think to do all cash um, as a strategy. Okay, so with that being said, about one third of all these uh, are purchased for cash. And that's been pretty consistent. And there will be investors seduced by the siren song of creative financing. You know, those that are attracted to the idea of going and finding, you know, some type of seller, motivated or otherwise, or, or distressed property of some type and trying to structure creative owner financing or wrap financing or subject to or acquiring properties on a lease with an option or lease purchase contract or, you know, do an installment land contract or contract for deed or, you know, in some cases, maybe doing loan assumption if you're doing some type of house hacking where you're trying to assume a really good low interest rate loan of some type. So there will be, you know, a lot of you, I wouldn't say a lot of you, but there will be some of you who will be seduced by this creative financing and are willing to do more of the real estate entrepreneurship of being in the business of going out there and finding deals, finding motivated sellers so that you can structure these creative financing deals. You know, I don't think everybody is attracted to those. I think some people are. And there are some compelling reasons to do it, but it's not the only way to do this. It's not the only way to achieve financial independence. So regardless of which path you choose, I think having this foundational knowledge of, con- of conventional investor financing will help you. you. know, whether you decide to do all cash I think it's helpful to understand the trade-offs you're making by doing all cash versus doing conventional financing. If you're going to go do this creative financing stuff, and you're going to be taking over some loans, you know, subject to or wrap financing or whatever, you know, might it help you to understand how conventional financing works, how it's structured, like what the terms are typically for that? I think it's super helpful. So, you know, having this background knowledge, I think will be helpful regardless of whether you do it or not. And a lot of you are going to choose to do it anyway. Okay. So a quick review of the different financing options that we've already covered in various classes and go dig into those if you want more information. But here is a really quick overview of the other financing options available. Now, first thing we're gonna start off with is the entire creative financing family, which is owner financing, wrap financing, loan assumption, rent to own, lease to own, lease option, lease purchase, the agreement for D, bond for D, contract for D, installment land contract group, and then subject to where you buy the property and you leave the existing financing in place. So all of those are available to you if you decide to go the creative financing route. And usually you'll find those by doing your own marketing or doing your own legwork in order to find some type of motivated seller. You usually don't find those inside the MLS. There are probably exceptions. I know I bought at least one property outside the MLS subject to before, but it was exceptional and it was only one. So really, really unlikely for you to find those types of deals there. Uh, as far as down payments go, I think it is likely for you to be able to negotiate some low down payment options when you're doing creative financing. And in some rarer cases, I think you'll be able to find some nothing down options. Um, another option for financing would be private money. This is going to grandma, someone you know who has money that they would be willing to invest in you. And you'll be very likely to be able to negotiate low down payment options on those as well. And in some cases, grandma may even not require anything down at all. Um, I would say it's based primarily on relationship and trust and a little bit of negotiating. And the quality of the deal can definitely help, especially with certain private lenders, depending on who you're talking to. The kind of uh, complementary group of financing to private money is hard money. Hard money is uh, money from people who are in the business of loaning money uh, secured by real estate You are very likely to be able to negotiate a relatively low down payment option with those. In some rare cases where you have an exceptional deal, you can probably be able to negotiate a nothing down option with some uh, hard money lenders. Uh, It's usually based on the quality of the deal and maybe a little bit of negotiation. And generally for the hard money, we're talking about commercial properties only. By commercial properties, I mean a property you are not moving into yourself. So it's really hard to do a hard money loan on a property you're moving into, um, usually because the hard money lenders do not want to get involved in the consumer loan regulations. And so they only want to do loans where you are not moving in. So typically not good for house hackers or nomads if you're trying to do some type of hard money. Private money, you could totally work with those. And creative financing could totally work with those. But hard money is probably going to be a no-go for trying to structure any type of owner-occupant situation with those. And then the typical ones we use for house hackers and nomads, VA financing, it's a nothing down loan option that requires you to have VA eligibility, which requires pretty much that you've been a veteran. Um, It can be used for single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes. It's one of the two loan programs that we can easily use for nothing down or low down in order to acquire those multifamily properties up to four units. Um, The other one being FHA. Um, so a VA is a pretty good option if you're trying to do house hacking and nomad. I, I, I think that's probably one of your first choices for the first loan you get, if you have that eligibility. If you don't, don't worry about it, move on to the next one. Uh, USDA financing is also nothing down and it requires that it be a rural property. You'll need to check the USDA eligibility map on their website. Just do a search for USDA eligibility map in Google, and it will show you the USDA's website where you can actually go and check to see if a property is considered rural for the sake of getting a USDA nothing down loan on that. So it's not usually going to be in major cities. It'll be on the outskirts. You may have to drive. So if you're really looking for a nothing down loan program, it may mean that you're commuting to wherever you know, you work or anything like that in order to be able to get the nothing down option, which is completely fine. You know, that is a sacrifice. I think a lot of investors are willing to make and should be willing to make. Uh, so those can only be used for single family homes and is nothing down loan program. Then there's FHA financing. That's usually three and a half percent down. You can put more down, but I'm, I'm showing you the minimums. And FHA is the other one that allows you to buy a single family homes plus duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes in order to acquire, acquire those properties. If you're doing, especially if you're doing house hacking um, or you're doing nomad strategy, both of those work great for those. Um, all of those so far, the VA financing, USDA, and FHA all require that you owner occupy the property. You need to move into one of the units or the, or the only unit if it's a single family home. So you're required to move in. And then conventional financing, if you're putting less than 15% down, you will need to owner occupy if you're putting more than 15% down and you're getting a non-owner occupant loan, you can buy those without moving into them. And so a lot of folks, a lot of real estate investors are going to be using conventional loans to buy their non-owner occupants, investor loan type properties where they're not required to move in. Now, if you do move in, you can get owner occupant financing, which has much better interest rates and you could do as low as 3% down or do in more commonly the 5% down conventional financing program to do that. And it's usually only for single family homes, unless you get up to a much higher down payment for those. All right. And then usually there's some, in in some markets, there is down payment assistance available, and that is often combined with FHA. um, And it may help you kind of offset some of the down payment or all the down payment, depending on the program that they have there. So usually for nomads or house hackers, that could be an additional strategy. There may also be in your local marketplace, Local banks or credit unions that offer low down payment and nothing down loan programs. From time to time, we see those as well. Okay, so that's a review of all the different financing options that we've covered before in other classes. This is the creative financing which I just covered before, so I'm not going to cover it again. And now let's talk about conventional financing, and specifically conventional financing for investors putting at least fifteen percent down. So you could go and do these for nomads or house hackers. You could move into the property and live there if you wanted to. Um, however, realize that. That is not the norm. Um, and by not the norm, I mean that a lot of investors are not going to be moving into the properties. They're going to be putting 20% down or 25% down. You can't put as low as 15% down and do that. But I think that there's it's a smaller group of people that are using these loans in order to do house hacking or nomading. Um, even though I'd like to change that. I would like to have more nomads and house hackers use conventional financing. All right, so uh, conventional finance here, primarily talking about Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. They're quasi-government organizations, is my understanding. Go talk to your lender if you really want to do or search online. Uh, But they are, uh, my understanding is they're sort of like government-ish sort of programs, but they're not actually government loans. But I don't know. I'm not sure I understand all the nuances of that, but you can go look it up if you want to. Uh, We typically use fixed interest rates when we do these. So you can do variable rate loans on some of these, but... um, I, you know, in a lot of cases, I would encourage you to consider trying to do fixed rate financing if you're going to get these loans. It's one of the loan products, one of the few loan products that has these fixed rate things. If you're going to do portfolio loans, a lot of times those do not have fixed rate financing. There's some exceptions to that. Like uh, our, local, our local portfolio lenders, one of the more popular ones that we go to, they do have fixed rate financing for 15-year loans. But if you do a 30-year loan, they're variable. So with uh, conventional financing, though, not portfolio, then they tend to be fixed rate. I like to do 30-year amortization loans, which means that you're doing a 30-year term on the loan and the loan will be completely paid off after 30 years. Why don't we normally do 15-year loans when we're doing conventional financing? Well, why would you want to? I mean, I think one of the reasons why is you get lower interest rates typically if you do a 15-year loan versus a 30-year loan. But why don't we typically do that with investment properties? I think a lot of the I think one of the big reasons why investors would not choose 15-year loans when doing conventional is the payment is going to be so much higher that it's going to have pretty significantly worse cash flow because you have to pay off the entire balance of the loan over that 15-year period. So that's I think one of the reasons why people don't do it. Although some investors, especially investors that they have a lot of income from their job and they're able to handle that worse cash flow on their properties, especially if they're trying to do some type of early retirement, or they're they're starting later and they have a very limited time until they get to their kind of retirement age. Some of them may choose to do fifteen year financing. Although, in most cases, when I've talked to clients in the past about the differences between thirty year and fifteen year, um, I tend to explain to them that why don't you do a thirty year loan, and if you want to pay ahead, you can but realize that the return you're getting by paying ahead is the interest rate of the loan. And I think in a lot of cases, you could do better by taking that money and investing somewhere else. Even if you were going to do a 30-year loan, take the extra money that you would have actually spent on doing a 15-year loan, invest that in something like bonds, CDs, money market accounts, stocks, or some other real estate investment as another example, but something other than paying down the loan and getting a higher rate of return than what you would have gotten by paying down that loan each month, because the the return you're getting is actually the interest rate of the underlying loan itself. And so if you take money as an example, and you invested it in the stock market, and that was growing at, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine, 10%, you know, depending on what you're investing in the stock market, you could use that money to then grow at a much faster rate, when it gets large enough where you could take that thing in one big chunk and completely pay off your mortgage at that point, that actually gets you there faster than if you take the same amount of money each month and you invest it in that underlying loan itself at that lower interest rate. Now, if the rate on the loan is actually higher, then it might be faster for you to do that. But if the, the the interest rate on the loan that you're paying off faster is lower than what you can get elsewhere, it'll tend to be faster if you actually do the investment elsewhere. There may be additional risk that you're taking on. You're introducing the new risk of investing in stocks that uh, when you do that. But you know I think a lot of folks believe that over a long enough period of time, that risk is a worthwhile risk to take for the uh, return that you're getting. All right, so conventional loans, talk about 30 years, fixed rate financing. Uh, It tends to be 740 plus credit scores for the best interest rates. If you're doing owner-occupant, as I mentioned before, you could do 3% down or 5% down. The 3% down is that home-ready, home-possible loan. It's primarily for first-time home buyers. 5% is much more common, and you should plan on doing that, especially if it's past your first one. So you might be able to do 3% for the first one, but you're probably gonna be doing 5% for subsequent ones, especially if you're doing like a nomad strategy where you're buying a property, moving in, living there for at least a year until you save up your next down payment, then converting that one to a rental. Then you're actually going to go buy a next one with 5% down and repeat this process. you probably should be planning on 5%, not 3%. Even though you can maybe able to do the first one for 3%, okay? Now, if you're doing the owner, sorry, the non-owner occupant ones, it's usually 15% down at a minimum. And that's going to include PMI. Now, PMI, if you remember, is private mortgage insurance. It's the insurance that you pay to protect the lender in case you default. So the lender basically is like, hey, I really would prefer that you put 20% down to buy this rental property. However, you seem insistent on wanting to put 15% down. So I'll tell you what, I will make you a loan with allowing you to put 15% down. It's gonna be a slightly higher interest rate. And I want you to go to this third party and pay them to protect me in case you default. I feel comfortable that if you put 20% down and you know property values move around a little bit and you stop making payments for whatever reason, and I have to come in and, and I have to foreclose on you, and then I have to go hire a real estate agent and you know, a handyman to go in and fix up the property and a real estate agent to go market it and sell the property. I think I can get most, if not all of my money back if you put 20% down. You put 15% down, I'm not so sure. I think it might be close depending on what happens in the marketplace and what you end up doing. And so I want to protect myself. And the way I protect myself is I have you pay a third-party insurance company that will pay out if I actually need to foreclose on you and I, uh, I sell the property at a loss. So they're the ones, third-party, that's protecting the lender in case you default. So if you decide to put 15% down, the interest rate's going to be higher. It's a little risk premium baked into there from the lender. And they're going to insist on you paying PMI. Okay, If you put 20% down, the interest rate gets a little bit better than doing 15% down, and you don't have PMI. So it actually improves cash flow quite a bit going to that 20%. And the interest rate will improve significantly more if you go from 20% to 25%, which is why a lot of folks, a lot of real estate investors will choose to wait that extra time, save up 25%, put 25% down. Okay? All right. But that being said, um, you could typically get 10 non-owner-occupant conventional loans per social security number. Um, and and I, I worded that oddly, the way I understand it and check with your lender to make sure that this is true for you. Uh, and this is actually the, the regulations, but my understanding is it's 10 loans period if you plan to get your next non-owner-occupant loan. So imagine for a minute you bought you know, a house to live in, then you went and you bought nine rental properties and you're trying to buy your 11th property. Those 10, the one you live in, and the nine that you have as investments, they would all count as financed properties if you still have loans on them. And so you would not be able to get your 11th conventional loan if you're trying to do that as a non-owner occupant. Oddly enough, in that same situation, if you were trying to buy that 11th property as a property to move into as an owner occupant, you would be able to get it because there's no limit on you doing it as an owner-occupant. This limit only applies to investment properties, okay? So that does count. Now, some real estate investors, some couples who know like they know like they know, they're definitely going to be getting more than 10 conventional loans. Maybe they've got a huge stack of money resources that they're already planning on using for down payments and they know that they're gonna be doing this. They may choose, to start filing their taxes separately, you know, getting their accountant or CPA, to start doing two separate tax returns. And then the individual spouses will get loans in their own names so that they each can get 10. So imagine for a minute, you've got two very high earners with a lot of resources, a lot of down payments saved up, and they know they're going to want to get 15 loans. Well, what they might do is tell their CPA to start separating their tax returns and then have one of them qualify for a loan and their social security number with their own tax return and have the other one get another property in their own name, their own loan with their own social security number on their own tax return. And then you can get 10 each, okay? Um, Now, talk to your lender if you plan on doing this. Don't say to them, James told me I can do this. You wanna make sure that the lender you're using and the underwriter they're using is going to say, yes, that is how I'm interpreting the regulations and the guidelines. And yes, that would work for us in our kind of like loan situation. So before you go through all this extra work of doing that, realize that's there. Now, if you're not going to get more than 10 conventional loans, you don't need to worry about this. Or if you're going to do some type of like nomad strategy where you're buying properties and you're always doing an owner occupant, it doesn't matter either. Just realize that it could, be, could come into play if you're trying to get a lot of loans um, and you've got a lot of resources to do that in order to kind of get these things there. Okay. Uh, Typically, you'd add 5% down payment if you're doing multifamily. I will show you the down payment chart here in a second. Uh, For Fannie, can you do cash out refinances up to four finance one to four unit properties? Uh, For Freddie, it's up to six. Again, I would check that guideline because um, I'm getting mixed information on that. So check with your lender to see what the current limit, if there is one at all, on being able to do cash out refinance properties for Fannie or Freddie. Uh, Because there has been limitations in the past. I thought that's what the limitation was, but your lender should be able to tell you what the exact limitation is at that time. So if you're going to go do it, make sure you do this. Um, And this comes into play, you know, if you know that you're going to do a cash out refinance and you're about to buy your next property, maybe check with your lender and say, hey, should I do this cash out refinance before I buy my next property? Because am I going to be limited in being able to do it after I buy the property? So you're, you're being put on notice. You're give, you're being given the information so that you don't make this mistake, right? This is like a heads up. Hey, before I buy a property, maybe I should check to see if there's any other ones I plan on doing a cash out refinance for and check with my lender to see if I should do that before I go buy this one. Uh, for both Fannie and Freddie, my understanding is the rate and term refinance, which is different than doing cash out refinance where you're pulling money out. You're just refinancing the rate of the loan and the term of the loan. Um, You could do up to 10 financed one to four unit properties if you're doing that. Um, Nomads, be careful because a lot of times it's much harder to do these cash out refinances or even rate and term refinances on the nomad property because when you do the nomad property originally, you're doing it as an owner occupant. And a lot of times you're putting very little down. Well, realize you got to wait until you have Significant amounts of equity in your property, and when you go to do your rate and term refi, you're now refining it usually as a non-owner occupant, as an investor, and you get an interest rate hit on that as well. So, a lot of times we're we're doing these loans on nomad properties with the intention of holding on to them for a very long period of time, or or paying them off very strategically. And we're not doing a lot of rate and term refinances on nomad properties in particular. But you may want to discuss that plan with you know whoever you're talking to about doing that. All right. So we talked about that. Um, Seller concessions. So when you get a seller to contribute some money towards your closing costs, when you're negotiating your offer to buy the property, it's usually written when you make your offer to buy the property as to how much they're contributing towards seller concessions. And it's really a discount to them, right? You're, You're really getting the property at a discount of whatever they're deciding to do in seller concessions. It's like they're netting that much less. So, if you ask them for 2% in seller concessions, realize you're asking them for a 2% discount. So, you may want to think about that when you're doing that. So, uh, when you're doing these loans, though, the the maximum seller concessions you can get for doing these conventional loans varies between 2% and 9%. It's usually 6% with 20% down, or 2% for the non owner occupant loans if you're going to do that. So, 6% down with 6% seller concessions, 20% down owner occupant or 2% for non-owner occupant. There's a separate chart for doing that. I don't know if it's on the next slide or not. I think there's a separate uh, chart in the underwriting guidelines or talk to your lender. Your lender can give you that. The most common conventional loan is the 20% down. It's for investors. So that's probably the most common one to do. If you're doing investor loans, putting 20% down. You can do 15% down, but realize you're gonna pay a penalty for that. I think we talked about that before. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the desktop underwriting version 11.0 standard eligibility requirements for conventional financing. And this just walks you through. This is directly from the underwriting guidelines. You can look this up online, look up, uh, you know, Fannie Mae um, underwriting guidelines or or, or selling guidelines or the Freddie Mac underwriting guidelines. And you'll see different charts for different situations. I just pulled out one of them for probably more common or call your lender and actually get your lender to walk you through what your situation is here. But they're usually using something like this. So there's a, a section here for principal residents. We covered that in a previous class. I'm not going to cover that today. There's a whole section here on doing second homes, which is a little bit different. Usually it's about 10% down for doing those on a purchase. And then you have this whole section for investment properties. So if you're buying a single unit, not a duplex, triplex or fourplex, you could do as little as 80 for 85% down. Or I'm sorry, 85% loan to value, 15% down for a fixed rate mortgage and adjustable rate mortgage. So you can get both of those options with a single family home. If you're doing a duplex, triplex or fourplex, they require 25% down. That's what this is showing here. Okay? So that's the kind of like lowest down payments Maximum loan to value is another way of saying that for doing that. And this shows you the limited cash out refinance for one to four units. You, you can only go up to 75% loan to value for doing cash out ref- or doing a uh, limited cash out refinances for cash out refinance, like the full version, you can only do uh, go up to 75% loan to value for a single family home. If you've got a duplex, triplex, or fourplex, you can only go up to 70% loan to value for those. So those are the limitations there. All right. All right. So in conclusion... There are several financing options, including nothing down and low down options, which we've covered a little bit today, but mostly in the previous classes where we had the nothing down loan options or the low down loan options. And despite investors obsessing about nothing down, low down and creative financing, about one third of all transactions are cash. And many of these, many of the other ones remaining are going to be conventional financing. I think having a really good working knowledge of conventional financing is foundational and will serve you regardless of what type of financing you opt to utilize, especially if you're going to do conventional financing. So that's all I got for you today. I hope that was helpful. Just kind of a good kind of like conventional financing primer or conventional financing 101 to give you an overview of how conventional financing works and kind of where it fits into the overall financing picture. This has been James Orr. Hope you have a great day. Bye bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Portland is harder than ever. Book a call with the real estate financial planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today.